Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Reading Through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discussing some of its wonderful teachings. This week, on the second half of the episode, we'll read paragraphs 470 through 501, and we'll talk about the concept of icons a little bit today. I used to listen to a comedian named Dimitri Martin, who had this bit about parents showing other people photos of their children. And he said, if you ever get annoyed by that, you know, someone's showing you a photo of your ch- of their children, and you're like, okay, this is nice, your kid's cute, but like, I don't really know your kid that well. The way you can uh, get people to stop showing you photos of their children is to do the following. When uh, someone showed Dimitri Martin a picture of his child, Dimitri Martin goes, you know what? I have the exact same photo in my wallet. And the guy was like, of my kid? Dimitri Martin was like, "Uh uh-huh. That guy never showed him photos of his child again. So we, we carry around images of people and things we love. Okay, when the the person or the thing is not right before us, we often carry around mementos, images, um, artifacts, remembrances of those people and things we love. I'm reminded of, I'm a big fan of The Office. Uh, There's an episode towards the end of, of one of the final seasons where it might have been the final season where Michael Scott, one of the main characters who was dying for years to get married and have children, Uh, gets married, has a number of children, and one of the other characters said that he had so many pictures of his kids, he needed two phones to contain all the images. I'm also reminded of friends of mine who were huge Flyers fans, are huge Flyers fans, and individually before they met each other, and then even more so as a couple, they just had all the gear. So multiple jerseys, posters, you know, signed items from different events um, or from different games, um, rings, bobbleheads, mugs, so that when you met these individuals and when they were together as a couple, you knew that they loved the Flyers. Lastly, I think of my my dear dad who loves his Catholic faith and um, over the years has accumulated different holy cards, statues, rosaries, uh, different images of, of Jesus, Mary, the saints. And we joke now that he, he keeps all these things on a shelf uh, just to the left of his desk. Um, we joke that he's like one of those little old Italian ladies who, who basically has like a little shrine in his basement, uh, his basement office. But make no mistake, when you walk into my dad's office, you know where his heart is. You know what he loves. Uh, what occupies his mind, his thoughts, his prayers, and what's important to him. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 476 and 477, talk about how uh, beautiful and appropriate it is to carry around images of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Because first, similar to the examples I just used, Um, Jesus is important to us, and so we want to carry around an image of this person, this God whom we love. But secondly, it's especially appropriate uh, because God himself, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh and stood before us. 
So he revealed the face of God in a very visual way. And now that he has ascended back to heaven, we keep images of him to remind us that he came, came into our human timeline and walked among us. Paragraph 476 says, Since the word became flesh in assuming a true humanity, Christ's body was finite. Therefore, the human face of Jesus can be portrayed. At the Seventh Ecumenical Council, the Council of Nicaea, the Second Council of Nicaea in 787, the church recognized its representation in holy images to be legitimate. Paragraph 477 goes on to say, At the same time, the church has always acknowledged that in the body of Jesus, we see our God made visible, and so are caught up in love of the God we cannot see. The individual characteristics of Christ's body express the divine person of God's Son. He has made the features of his human body his own, to the point that they can be venerated when portrayed in a holy image, for the believer who venerates the icon is venerating in it the person of the one depicted. Again, what a mysterious blessing it is that Adam and Eve committed original sin. Had they not, we might not have seen the second person of the Trinity descend into our human timeline. God sends his only begotten son, again the second person of the Trinity, God himself, to step into our human timeline to suffer and die for us, to save us from sin, which might not have been needed had Adam and Eve not messed up. And as a result of all this, we get to see the face of God. Prior to that, scripture talks about a number of theophanies throughout the Old Testament or appearances of God. We read about Moses uh, seeing God in the burning bush. We hear about Elijah uh, looking for God among the thunder, um, various other elements in nature, and it's, it's the gentle breeze through which God comes to him. But now in the New Testament, God himself, the second person of the Holy Trinity, steps into our human timeline, takes on human flesh, and walks among us so that we see him, God himself, face to face. After he departs, in other words, after the resurrection and his ascension back to heaven, again, the catechism says, since the word became flesh in assuming a true humanity, the human face of Jesus can be portrayed. So some, some faiths believe that it's disrespectful to portray God's image or even to utter his name. I'm reminded of an 11th grade social studies project I did um, with a, a group of students, one of whom was Jewish. So I went to a big public high school, and we did this project on, I forget exactly what the, what the specific topic was, but it had to do with God. It was a, a presentation of religion. And because one of the members of our group was a, a serious practicing Jew, um, as we wrote our report and then eventually presented our findings and you know wrote stuff up on the chalkboard, we couldn't write, G-O-D. We couldn't write God because that was contrary to his faith. So he believed it was disrespectful even to write the word God because God is so far above and beyond us um, that we cannot put his name into writing. He, he believed that to be disrespectful. So throughout our report, throughout our paper, and then we were, when we were writing some of our notes up on the board for the class, we wrote capital G-D. And it, it was really cool and a cool experience and has stuck with me in that, one, it was neat to meet a fellow student who was serious about his faith, you know, even though our, our faiths were different. But two, um, 
it was interesting to see uh, just the, this beautiful respect for his God. He believed that God, again, was so transcendent, so far above and beyond us, that it was belittling or disrespectful to him to try to contain him in our in our human world by writing writing his name down. So as Catholics, we believe that that God himself belittled himself. God condescended to confine himself to a human body and to walk among us. And so we can follow his lead. We can, again, in the spirit of WWJD, what would Jesus do? Continue to portray his image, especially now that he has ascended back to heaven. So that like parents who carry around pictures of their children, we can carry around pictures, images, paintings, statues of God and then his holy ones reminding us um, who loves us, who created us, and when it comes to the angels and saints, uh, our big brothers and sisters in the faith, those who have gone before us, uh, we, we can strive to be like them, remember them, uh, think of them so as to, to be like them. So again, paragraph 476 says, at the seventh ecumenical council, recall that an ecumenical council is when the Pope and bishops throughout the world gather together to further define, further clarify, further unpack the teachings of divine revelation. Uh, the seventh ecumenical council took place in Nicaea in 787. The church recognized representation in holy images to be legitimate. If you have a physical catechism in front of you, take a look at the footnotes contained within paragraph 476. There's two footnotes, uh, 112 and 113. And if you look at the bottom of the page, footnote 113 references Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. That's one of the books in the New Testament when St. Paul writes a letter to the Galatians. And then, as is mentioned in paragraph 476, it refers to the Second Council of Nicaea, which took place in the year 787. So I've, I've talked a lot about the, the tripod of truth, the font of divine revelation, and those three pieces or those three players that work together to accurately hand on the teachings of the Catholic faith, sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium. So here in the footnotes, we see the magisterium referenced, this church council where the pope and the bishops in communion with him Look at scripture. One of one scripture passage is Galatians chapter three, verse one, which says, St. Paul again speaking to the Galatians, says, O stupid Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, God Himself came before our very eyes. And so when we carry images of him, it's in keeping with what God Himself did, coming before our eyes publicly. So in that footnote there, we see uh, scripture, sacred scripture referenced, and we see the magisterium referenced. Again, just noting how these elements of the tripod of truth, the font of divine revelation, work together to hand on the teachings of the Catholic faith. Notice the language, too, in that paragraph. It says the church recognized. So sacred tradition, um, if you look back in the history of the church, the practices of, of Christians early on, we'll see that images had been created and venerated uh, in order to draw our hearts and minds back to God. Scripture references this passage, again references how Christ was publicly portrayed before our very eyes. And so we continue to create 
and venerate images of God so that our hearts and minds can be drawn up to him whom we no longer have physically standing before us. So that phrase, the church recognized, is is important because, again, the church does not create teachings, um, come up with new beliefs in the Catholic faith. It simply looks at scripture, it looks at tradition, and by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, interprets, further clarifies, and helps us understand what God has entrusted to us so many years ago. I use that word venerate to make a distinction uh, because this icons, uh, the use of icons or images of God, the angels and the saints, and then talk of worship of God and sometimes of angels and saints or the Blessed Mother can be um, a bone of contention among different, different Christian groups. So we can make the distinction between what's known as latria and dulia. Latria, um, meaning adoration, is something that involves sacrifice and is only due to God. So we give adoration or latria only to God himself. Dulia or veneration is something that's non-sacrificial and this we can give to uh, others who are not God. So for example, the, the Blessed Mother, the angels and saints, we can venerate them. We recognize that God has worked in a special, beautiful way in their lives, that they responded to God and his graces in a beautiful way. And we can um, venerate or show respect and honor to them and thank God for all that he has done and continues to do in and through them as we strive to be like them. So when we have icons or images, um, we're not worshiping them in the sense of bowing down before you know these pictures, these statues, these holy images, but we, we look to them as a way of allowing our hearts and minds to be drawn up to God, whom we do worship with adoration. When we look at images of, again, the Blessed Mother, the angels and saints, holy people who have gone before us, we, we venerate them in the sense of we recognize that, that God, who these people are not, um, has done good things through them, and we pray that God will do good and beautiful things through us as well. Paragraph 477 again says, Jesus has made the features of his human body his own to the point that they can be venerated when portrayed in a holy image. For the believer who venerates the icon is venerating in it the person of the one depicted. So on a side note, the word icon comes from the Greek eikon, meaning likeness or image. And when using an icon, an image, a likeness, we're not worshiping, again, that particular statue or painting or holy card and therefore blaspheming God, but we're venerating the one depicted. Okay, so we're either adoring God himself or we're venerating, giving honor and reverence to those who lived exemplary lives. For example, the Blessed Mother, the saints, the angels, who then point to and draw us closer to God himself. A similar thing could be said of sacramentals. So in addition to paintings and holy cards and statues, we have things like miraculous medals, scapulars, rosaries. We don't invest some voodoo power in rosary beads, scapulars, or other Catholic sacramentals, but they're important because we as human beings are body and soul, and so the physical world affects and directs us. For example, when we see someone holding or praying a rosary, 
We are human beings with bodies and eyes and, you know, hands to hold rosary beads. We, we stop and think for a moment, ooh, did I pray a rosary today? Or, you know, when could I pray a rosary next? Which then draws our souls, our hearts, our minds up to God. So when we see sacramentals used by others, when we wear or use them ourselves, they draw us up to the one who came down to us to draw us up to himself. So these sacramentals, these holy objects, draw us up to God who came down to us to draw us up to himself. Uh, growing up, my parents had a, a Catholic booking gift store in our, our hometown. And, you know, they sold lots of books and Bibles and statues and rosaries and crucifixes. And over the years, uh, a lot of items made their way into our home. So, you know, my mom would be ordering um, for various customers and, and come across this extremely beautiful crucifix and then buy one for our home or same thing with an image of Jesus or an image of the Blessed Mother. Um, it got to the point where she she had a, a tiny little statue of Jesus, tiny little statue of Mary, a little crucifix, and she, with double-sided tape, arranged them on the dashboard of her minivan um, because they were you know, really beautiful and just like a perfect little size to carry around these, this God and this person whom we loved and, and adored and venerated. And so why not? And so we joked that, that she had a mobile shrine on her, her dashboard. So at some point in high school, I was dating this guy who, who came to our home one day. He sits down on the couch, looks around and goes, wow, with all of these Mary statues and pictures of Jesus around, Makes you not want to do anything wrong. The camera then pans to my dad in the corner, quietly shaking his head, saying, mm-hmm, that's right, son. Okay. So first know that icons are a blessing and a way of helping us physical beings draw closer to the infinite and immaterial God who took on human flesh and stepped into our human, fleshly, physical timeline, but is now back in heaven and not right before our earthly eyes. Second, when others see you and your home and maybe your car, what is important to you? About what are you passionate? So do they look around your home and think, man, these people really love the flyers? Or, wow, she is a big fan of the office. Or, huh, this family seems to be really Catholic. They must like God a whole lot. I'm not saying you have to have a mobile shrine on your dashboard. Uh, in our home, Dan and the kids and I have a crucifix on one wall with a family photo gallery around it. And then on our other wall, we have a famous sketch by Pam Beasley, one of the office characters, on our other wall. But this week, just, just take a look around your home, your car, maybe what you wear on your t-shirts, what you carry around with you. If someone were to look at your life before they even hear the words that you say, to what do the icons or images in your life point? What is important to you based on what you portray around you? We'll now take a short break and then return to read our catechism selection for the week. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Welcome back. 
We'll now read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 470 through 501. How is the Son of God man? Because human nature was assumed, not absorbed, in the mysterious union of the Incarnation, the Church was led over the course of centuries to confess the full reality of Christ's human soul, with its operations of intellect and will, and of his human body. In parallel fashion, she had to recall on each occasion that Christ's human nature belongs, as his own, to the divine person of the Son of God who assumed it. Everything that Christ is and does in this nature derives from one of the Trinity. The Son of God therefore communicates to his humanity his own personal mode of existence in the Trinity. In his soul, as in his body, Christ thus expresses humanly the divine ways of the Trinity. The Son of God worked with human hands. He thought with a human mind. He acted with a human will, and with a human heart he loved. Born of the Virgin Mary, he has truly been made one of us, like to us in all things except sin. Christ's soul and his human knowledge. Apollinarius of Laodicea asserted that in Christ, the divine word had replaced the soul or spirit. Against this error, the church confessed that the eternal son also assumed a rational human soul. This human soul that the son of God assumed is endowed with a true human knowledge. As such, this knowledge could not in itself be unlimited. It was exercised in the historical conditions of his existence in space and time. This is why the Son of God could, when he became man, increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, and would even have to inquire for himself about what one in the human condition can learn only from experience. This corresponded to the reality of his voluntary emptying of himself, taking the form of a slave. But at the same time, this truly human knowledge of God's Son expressed the divine life of his person. The human nature of God's Son, not by itself but by its union with the Word, knew and showed forth in itself everything that pertains to God. Such is first of all the case with the intimate and immediate knowledge that the Son of God made man has of his Father. The Son in his human knowledge also showed the divine penetration he had into the secret thoughts of human hearts. By its union to the divine wisdom in the person of the Word incarnate, Christ enjoyed in his human knowledge the fullness of understanding of the eternal plans he had come to reveal. What he admitted to not knowing in this area, he elsewhere declared himself not sent to reveal. Christ's Human Will Similarly, at the Sixth Ecumenical Council, the Third Council of Constantinople in 681, the Church confessed that Christ possesses two wills and two natural operations, divine and human. They are not opposed to each other, but cooperate in such a way that the Word made flesh willed humanly in obedience to his Father all that he had decided divinely with the Father and the Holy Spirit for our salvation. Christ's human will does not resist or oppose, but rather submits to his divine and almighty will. Christ's true body. Since the Word became flesh in assuming a true humanity, Christ's body was finite. Therefore, the human face of Jesus can be portrayed. At the Seventh Ecumenical Council, the Second Council of Nicaea in 787, the Church recognized its representation in holy images to be legitimate. At the same time, the Church has always acknowledged that in the body of Jesus, we see our God made visible and so are caught up in love of the God we cannot see. The individual characteristics of Christ's body express the divine person of God's Son. 
He has made the features of his human body his own to the point that they can be venerated when portrayed in a holy image. For the believer who venerates the icon is venerating in it the person of the one depicted. The heart of the incarnate word. Jesus knew and loved us each and all during his life, his agony and his passion, and gave himself up for each one of us. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. He has loved us all with a human heart. For this reason, the sacred heart of Jesus, pierced by our sins and for our salvation, is quite rightly considered the chief sign and symbol of that love with which the divine Redeemer continually loves the Eternal Father and all human beings without exception. In brief, at the time appointed by God, the only Son of the Father, the Eternal Word, that is, the Word and substantial image of the Father, became incarnate. Without losing his divine nature, he has assumed human nature. Jesus Christ is true God and true man, in the unity of his divine person. For this reason, he is the one and only mediator between God and men. Jesus Christ possesses two natures, one divine and the other human, not confused, but united in the one person of God's Son. Christ, being true God and true man, has a human intellect and will, perfectly attuned and subject to his divine intellect and divine will, which he has in common with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Incarnation is therefore the mystery of the wonderful union of the divine and human natures in the one person of the Word. Paragraph 2. Conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Annunciation to Mary inaugurates the fullness of time, the time of the fulfillment of God's promises and preparations. Mary was invited to conceive him in whom the whole fullness of deity would dwell bodily. The divine response to her question, how can this be, since I know not man, was given by the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The mission of the Holy Spirit is always conjoined and ordered to that of the Son. The Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, is sent to sanctify the womb of the Virgin Mary and divinely fecundate it causing her to conceive the eternal Son of the Father in a humanity drawn from her own. The Father's only Son, conceived as man in the womb of the Virgin Mary, is Christ, that is to say, anointed by the Holy Spirit from the beginning of his human existence, though the manifestation of this fact takes place only progressively, to the shepherds, to the Magi, to John the Baptist, to the disciples. Thus the whole life of Jesus Christ will make manifest how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, and with power. Born of the Virgin Mary What the Catholic faith believes about Mary is based on what it believes about Christ, and what it teaches about Mary illumines in turn its faith in Christ. Mary's Predestination God sent forth his Son, but to prepare a body for him, he wanted the free cooperation of a creature. For this, from all eternity, God chose for the mother of his Son a daughter of Israel, a young Jewish woman of Nazareth and Galilee, a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The Father of Mercies willed that the incarnation should be preceded by assent on the part of the predestined mother, so that just as a woman had a share in the coming of death, so also should a woman contribute to the coming of life. Throughout the Old Covenant, the mission of many holy women prepared for that of Mary. At the very beginning, there was Eve, Despite her disobedience, she receives the promise of a posterity that will be victorious over the evil one, as well as the promise that she will be the mother of all the living. 
By virtue of this promise, Sarah conceives a son in spite of her old age. Against all human expectation, God chooses those who are considered powerless and weak to show forth his faithfulness to his promises. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, Deborah, Ruth, Judith and Esther, and many other women. Mary stands out among the poor and humble of the Lord who confidently hope for and receive salvation from him. After a long period of waiting, the times are fulfilled in her. The exalted daughter of Zion and the new plan of salvation is established. The Immaculate Conception To become the mother of the Savior, Mary was enriched by God with gifts appropriate to such a role. The angel Gabriel at the moment of the Annunciation salutes her as full of grace. In fact, in order for Mary to be able to give the free assent of her faith to the announcement of her vocation, it was necessary that she be wholly borne by God's grace. Through the centuries, the Church has become ever more aware that Mary, full of grace through God, was redeemed from the moment of her conception. That is what the dogma of the Immaculate Conception confesses, as Pope Pius IX proclaimed in 1854. The most blessed Virgin Mary was, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. The splendor of an entirely unique holiness by which Mary is enriched from the first instant of her conception comes wholly from Christ. She is redeemed in a more exalted fashion by reason of the merits of her Son. The Father blessed Mary more than any other created person, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and chose her in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. The fathers of the Eastern tradition call the Mother of God the All-Holy and celebrate her as free from any stain of sin, as though fashioned by the Holy Spirit and formed as a new creature. By the grace of God, Mary remained free of every personal sin her whole life long. Let it be done to me according to your word. At the announcement that she would give birth to the Son of the Most High, without knowing man, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Mary responded with the obedience of faith, certain that with God nothing will be impossible. Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Thus, giving her consent to God's word, Mary becomes the mother of Jesus espousing the divine will for salvation wholeheartedly, without a single sin to restrain her, she gave herself entirely to the person and to the work of her son. She did so in order to serve the mystery of redemption with him and dependent on him by God's grace. As St. Irenaeus says, being obedient, she became the cause of salvation for herself and for the whole human race. Hence, not a few of the early fathers gladly assert the knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by Mary's obedience. What the virgin Eve bound through her disbelief, Mary loosened by her faith. Comparing her with Eve, they call Mary the mother of the living and frequently claim death through Eve, life through Mary. Mary's divine motherhood. Called in the Gospels the mother of Jesus, Mary is acclaimed by Elizabeth at the prompting of the Spirit and even before the birth of her son as the mother of my Lord. In fact, the one whom she conceived as man by the Holy Spirit, who truly became her son according to the flesh, was none other than the Father's eternal Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Hence, the Church confesses that Mary is truly Mother of God, Theotokos. Mary's Virginity From the first formulations of her faith, the Church has confessed that Jesus was conceived solely by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, 
affirming also the corporeal aspect of this event. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit without human seed. The fathers see in the virginal conception the sign that it truly was the Son of God who came in a humanity like our own. Thus, St. Ignatius of Antioch, at the beginning of the second century, says, You are firmly convinced about our Lord, who is truly of the race of David according to the flesh, Son of God according to the will and power of God, truly born of a virgin. He was truly nailed to a tree for us in his flesh under Pontius Pilate. He truly suffered, as he is also truly risen. The Gospel accounts understand the virginal conception of Jesus as a divine work that surpasses all human understanding and possibility. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, said the angel to Joseph about Mary, his fiancée. The Church sees here the fulfillment of the divine promise given through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. People are sometimes troubled by the silence of St. Mark's Gospel and the New Testament epistles about Jesus' virginal conception. Some might wonder if we were merely dealing with legends or theological constructs not claiming to be history. To this we must respond. Faith in the virginal conception of Jesus met with the lively opposition, mockery, or incomprehension of non-believers, Jews, and pagans alike. So it could hardly have been motivated by pagan mythology or by some adaptation to the ideas of the age. The meaning of this event is accessible only to faith, which understands in it the connection of these mysteries with one another in the totality of Christ's mysteries, from his incarnation to his Passover. St. Ignatius of Antioch already bears witness to this connection. Mary's virginity and giving birth, and even the Lord's death, escaped the notice of the prince of this world. These three mysteries, worthy of proclamation, were accomplished in God's silence. Mary, ever virgin. The deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In fact, Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it. And so the liturgy of the church celebrates Mary as a Parthenos, the ever-virgin. Against this doctrine, the objection is sometimes raised that the Bible mentions brothers and sisters of Jesus. The church has always understood these passages as not referring to other children of the Virgin Mary. In fact, James and Joseph, quote-unquote brothers of Jesus, are the sons of another Mary, a disciple of Christ, whom St. Matthew significantly calls the other Mary. They are close relations to Jesus, according to an Old Testament expression. Jesus is Mary's only son, but her spiritual motherhood extends to all men, whom indeed he came to save. The son whom she brought forth is he whom God placed as the firstborn among many brethren, that is, the faithful in whose generation and formulation she cooperates with a mother's love. That brings us to the end of our episode. Be sure to connect with me this week on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast. As you consider this week, what are the icons in your life and to what do they point? Please share your thoughts in the comments section of this week's Instagram post. I'll be praying for you. Please pray for me and I'll see you next week. In the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends, and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.